morning. I bring you greetings from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern is one of six Southern Baptist seminaries. Um, they're hither and yon all over the United States, and um, it is a great honor to be with you today. I thank <clears throat> Chaplain Paul for the invitation, and thank you all for being here. Um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I'm actually going to be talking about Matthew chapter 8, but the lead up to that comes from chapter 7, and the verses that I want to draw your attention to start in verse 21 of chapter 7, Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 7, verses 21 and following. I, I noticed that in the town of Sterling, there's a coffee shop named Clive Staples, right? And some of you are C.S. Lewis fans, so you know that's, that's where C.S. Lewis, that's what the initials mean, Clive Staples. He never really liked that name. Uh, he, he didn't like to be called Clive, obviously not Staples, and his nickname was Jack, actually. He, he, he adopted that nickname for himself because he didn't like Clive and Staples. Uh, but here's what's interesting about C.S. Lewis. He's known for wearing two hats uh, for most people who are familiar with um, Christian literature. One of, probably the most famous uh, title that he has would be the author of the Narnia series, right? I guess there's at least two that have been made into films. People recognize the name C.S. Lewis from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Silver Chair, and so forth. But there's another hat that C.S. Lewis also wears, and that's as a Christian apologist, somebody who attempts to give evidence for the tr Christian truth claims. And one of the, the arguments that Lewis is most known for is this one. He says uh, about Jesus, this is in Mere Christianity, uh, you have three options when it comes to your view of who Jesus is. And you will have heard this before, a lot of you have. Uh, liar, lunatic, or son of God. And the reason why he says it comes down to just those three is that Jesus says things about himself that would be wildly irresponsible, indeed crazy, if they're not true, right? In other words, a lot of people in C.S. Lewis's day had this view of Jesus, which was, you know, I, 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 he's admirable, right? I, I like Jesus, right? Okay, not the son of God, but I, I, I admire Jesus, right? That's what a lot of people in his day in the 1940s and 50s, 60s, that's what they thought about Jesus. They were prepared to see Jesus as a sage, as a philosopher, somebody like that, but then they would say about his claim to being the son of God, well, no, no, okay, that, that part, no. And what Lewis argues is if you try to go down that road, the problem that you're going to run into is Jesus doesn't let you have that view of him. Okay? He, does, he eliminates that by saying things about himself which, if, are, if they're not true, they're, he's either lying or he's crazy. And in the, these verses here in chapter 7, you have a very good example of that, which raises the question, can he back that up? Like, can he back up what he says about himself? You look at verse, chapter 7, verse 21 and following. Just listen to this, and you'll recognize it. I think it's one of the more scarier passages in the New Testament because of what it says about how we can deceive ourselves as far as our Christian identity may be concerned. Look at what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you read those words, and most of us, the first time we see those, we're thinking, oh, wow, look, wait a minute. Like, I can, I can prophesy in Jesus' name. I can say, Lord, Lord, I can be orthodox in my beliefs. I can do that. I can prophesy in his name, do evangelism, apparently. I can, what? I can cast out demons, okay? And in his name, perform many miracles and still be lost, still not have that personal relationship with Christ that your worship team was talking about. You, that could happen, and most of us, when we see those verses, we're like, wait a minute, that, that gets my attention. But there's another part to these verses that might not be as obvious, but these are the ones that would really be arresting, if you want to put it that way, almost like shocking for people in his day to hear them. I want to read these verses again. I want you to listen to the different emphasis that I'm going to put on them because this is what's really the amazing thing, if not what I just said. Listen to this now again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, judgment day, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. This comes straight from the Old Testament. Depart from me. That is, Jesus is claiming to be the me who speaks in these words. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, just try to figure out this scene, right? Here's Jesus. He looks like any other person in his day. There's no halo over his head, right? He doesn't glow with garments of white. He looks like a regular guy in his day. And he's saying that about himself. He's saying, when you are there in front of God on judgment day, I'm the face you're going to be looking at. Okay, I'm the person that you will be facing. People will say, on that day, that court day, depart. <clears throat> what, look at all these things I did for you and he, did for you. And he will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is an extraordinary claim for Jesus to make about himself. No wonder that you read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at this, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And believe me, that is not the amazement of as if Jesus just did a spectacular high wire act. The amazement is, I don't get it. Right? That's the amazement. I don't, I don't get this. Like, <laughs> is that all right for him to say that? Because it sure sounded to me like he claimed to be God right there. And all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, you see that. A very good example is chapter 5, when Jesus says, You have heard it said, I say unto you. You have heard it said, I say unto you. In the time of Jesus, that language, I say unto you, is the language of royal decree. That's the way Caesar Augustus would give decrees. He would say, I decree. You have heard it said, I decree unto you. You have heard it said, I decree unto you. Jesus is speaking as if he is a king and he believes that about himself. 
So no wonder the crowds are amazed at his teaching because of the authority that he claims for himself in saying what he does, which raises the question now answered in chapter 8. That question is this, can he back that up? And the answer is yes. You're going to see a series of miraculous deeds by Jesus, the entire purpose of which is to show you he has the authority that he claims for himself throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Look with me at, at chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Immediate healing of a person you would never otherwise touch. You wouldn't touch a leper in that day. Jesus does. And you can imagine as he's reaching out to touch him, the whole, uh, the whole crowd of onlookers is saying, no, 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 <laughs> you don't do that. But he does. And he's instantaneously cleansed. And what that tells you is, yes, he can back it up. He really is the very son of God. Go down to the verse 5. It's a, another instance of this. Verse 5, and when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, just give a command, that's all. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I am also a man under authority. That word right there, authority. He, the crowds were amazed that he taught as one having authority. Here you have it. He has authority. With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus responds, verse 10, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Why is that great faith? Well, here's why. The centurion knows why this is going to work, okay? So you just think about it. You're a centurion. If you have a soldier under you, when you give that soldier an order, that soldier is going to do what you say. And here's why. Because when you give him an order, you speak for Caesar. That's why. He's going to do what you say because you're under the authority of Rome. And what he's telling Jesus is, I get it. I understand why you can just give a commandment and it's going to happen because you're under the authority of the Heavenly Father. And I know when you give an order to this disease to go away, that's exactly what it's going to do because you have that kind of authority. And Jesus does. He, you see later on in verse 13 that that servant is healed. And when that servant is healed, you know he has the authority. He can back it up. Skip down with me to verse 14. I'm going to come back to the other verses later. But look at verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. A fever could be very serious in that day as it could be here in our day with this difference. There's no, there's no antibiotics. There's no Tylenol. There's no treatment for a fever. You just have to ride it out. And in that day, if you have a fever, maybe you die that day. 
There's no treatment. Jesus heals her so completely that she's able to go immediately back to her activities. He can back it up. Look at verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So you look at that, this summary statement. Look at it again, verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many who were, who were demon-possessed. <laughs> That's considered a hopeless condition in that day. You're demon-possessed, you're done. It's what people think. Like, you can't be healed of that. And Jesus does that as a matter of routine. He cast out spirits with a word, with a word, with a command. That's what that means. He commands them and they go away. And he healed all who were ill. You see a phrase like that. He healed all who were ill. This is what can happen. I know it happens with me. I've got to guard against this. And if you're pretty normal when you read the Bible, this is going to happen to you. Here's, Here's what it is. You'll read a statement like that and you'll think, yeah, you know, I mean, this is what Jesus does. He heals people. And a familiarity with that can kind of get you to where you're not startled by this. But I want, to, I want you to visualize it this way. The biggest city near us is probably KC, right? So just imagine the biggest hospital in KC or <clears throat> somewhere like that. The biggest hospital there is. And imagine a very ordinary looking person walks into that hospital And he starts touching people, and every last person that he touches from the ground floor to the top, no matter how sick they are, no matter how destroyed they seem to be, every last person in that hospital walks out that day perfectly healed. That's what you read in verse 16. That's the outflowing of divine power that we're talking about. He does this. Huge crowds come to him. The crush upon him must have been extraordinary, but he just heals people on a conveyor belt. One after another after another never fails, not one time. And when you think about that, if you were to see this happening and you remember some of his claims that he made about himself, that he has that authority, you would know, yes, he's for real. He can back it up. Drop down to verse 23. Here's another instance. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm. Very familiar scene. There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Okay, here's the thing. Like, these are fishermen, right? This is what they do. This is their life. (laughs) They live on this this body of water, and they are terrified. Now, believe me, if you can get the pros to be afraid of of what's going to happen to them out on the water, you know this storm had to be something else entirely. And they honestly believe this is the end. We are perishing. Save us. Jesus is asleep. That would have been an amazing thing. Like, how does he manage to sleep when everybody else is screaming? They wake him up. Look at what happens next. Verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Like, really, I'm the son of God. Do you think I'm going to drown here? Okay, no, that's not going to happen. If you believe he's the son of God, 
no, he's not going to drown right there. That won't happen, okay? But look at what happens next. You, you have little faith. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed, just like the crowds. The men were amazed, verse 27, and said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The wind and the sea. All right, now just think about their frame of reference. As Jewish men, they would know that the only person who commands water is who? You go back to the Old Testament, who is that? Who commands water? That's God. Genesis chapter 1 gives you an indicator of that. You think about that. What's the, the phrase you hear over and over again as God creates? And God did what? And God said... And God said, and God said, God commands, he commands, he commands, he commands, and nature says, yep, every time. God has remote control over the days of creation. They go play when he says play, and they stop when he says stop. Play, stop, play, stop. That's the kind of control that God has over forces of nature that people in that time and place would think are unruly, they cannot be tamed, and Jesus has that under perfect control, as does God. You get to the Exodus, and you see the plagues against Egypt, and what are they? They're, they're a microcosm of the created event, creation event. God separates light from darkness. He does that against Egypt. He causes the ground to teem with creatures. He does that against Egypt. But it's, it's the same thing. You have the creation and the plagues against Egypt. They, they track with one another. And when God does that to Egypt, he's putting on display his complete and total control over the forces of nature and showing that he is God and beside him there is no other. So when Jesus sits up from this boat and commands the wind and the waves, he is showing you definitively that he is indeed God. He can back it up. They ask the question, what kind of man is this? You already know. You already know. He is the very son of God. Look at verse 28. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming up out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out. This is what, I love this. The demons answer the question asked back there in verse 27. The demons themselves answer. Look at this. What kind of man is this? Here we go. Verse 29. They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know, right? The demons know. You can take just what the demons say in the Gospels, just the demons, what they say about Jesus, you put all those together, you know exactly who he is. Because the they don't like to say it, but they must say it. The demons, it's wrung out of them the truth. He really is the Son of God. What have you to do with the Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Verse 30, And no, <clears throat> now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. 
I think if you're, if you're a regular person, normal person looking at that passage, just like I, I thought for a long time, you know, you look at this and you're like, wait a minute, I, I don't understand. <laughs> like, why would Jesus agree to this? Okay, you know, he can do with the demons what he wants. You get this weird request from the demons. Like, if you're going to send us out, send us into the swine. And you, I think it's fair to ask the question, why does Jesus agree to this? Like, you know, he doesn't have to, but he does. And you, you've got to wonder that. And here's the answer to that question. He's, this is a, a display of power for the benefit of those who are watching. Because when he casts those demons out, here's what you learn. Here's what we learn and what the disciples would have learned as they watched this. They would know how destructive those demons really are and how many they are. It's very clear. If they go into a herd of swine and the whole herd goes into the water, it's very clear from that event how destructive and powerful they are. But here's the other part about it. It shows you his exact control over those demons. They are going to go exactly where he wants them to. He has complete power over the forces of nature, and you see here over disease. And then thirdly, in this passage, pretty clear, he has total control over the forces of evil. Total control. You want a book of the New Testament that shows you God's lockdown sovereignty over everything that happens, even the bad stuff? You just look at the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And you notice what John says about these are the things which must soon take place. And then when you read the Revelation, everything happens how? Like clockwork, right? Things are written down, seals are broken, and the events that occur roll out like clockwork. Because what? God is in total control of every last thing that happens. He rules. And when Jesus casts out these demons, it's clear he is the very son of God. Well, you'll notice as I've been talking, I've skipped some passages, and I want to go back to them in the time that we have remaining. Here's why they're there. You notice in chapter 8, verse 17, that Matthew quotes from a very famous passage from Isaiah. A lot of people think of this passage, it's Isaiah 53, they, they think of it as the gospel in the Old Testament, because that's that passage in Isaiah that talks about Jesus bearing our sins, the Messiah doing that, carrying away our infirmities. He was despised and rejected, right? But he nevertheless becomes our sin bearer. And what that tells you is this, if Jesus is really the Messiah, then there's something else that's going to need to happen to him to authenticate his identity. And that is, he must be rejected by men. If Jesus had come and everybody warmly receives him, no problems at all, we know automatically he cannot be the Messiah because that passage in the Old Testament makes it very clear, oh no, when the Messiah comes, he will be rejected by people. And Matthew is drawing your attention to that passage because you see in chapter 8, right along with all those miracles that are happening, he is also being rejected. And you'll see that beginning in, look at verse 11. You have the contrast between the centurion and people in general in his day. Look at verse 11. I say to you, having noticed what the centurion's faith is, I say to you that many will come from east and west, 
and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, that is his own people, right? His, his very own. The sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And why was that going to happen? Well, because they reject him. That's why. It's anticipating the rejection and the final consequence of that rejection right there in that passage. And when he is rejected, that is as much of an area of evidence of who he is as anything else that happens. His being rejected also shows you that he is the Messiah. Look then at verse 18 and following. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, right, he just healed people. <clears throat> when he, Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you know why he has nowhere to lay his head? No one offers. That's the point. No one offers. You can imagine him healing all these people that you see there in, in the previous verses. He heals all these people, and everybody's like, right? Bye. See ya. Thanks. It's been great, right? Everybody takes off, and there's Jesus like, okay, well, yeah. No, nobody apparently thought at all, right, to, to say, where, where actually are you sleeping tonight? Like, you're not going to be on the ground, right? No, no. Uh, yeah, but he has nowhere to lay his head because no one offers. That's why he has nowhere to lay his head. And in not offering even that, that minimal thing, he's being rejected. Here's another instance. Verse 21, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Like, would-be disciple, oh, yeah, I'm going to follow you. First, let me bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That's pretty tough, right? Sounds harsh, right, for Jesus to say that. Probably what's going on is this. In that day, a burial was a two-stage thing. Okay, what you're going to have is when the person dies, and you see this even with Joseph of Arimathea when he takes the body of Jesus and puts it in his tomb, this is exactly what's going to happen. He's going to take the body, whoever it is, it's going to be put in a tomb. And then that body, this is an indelicate thing, but, you know, it's the truth, right? It's allowed to decompose for a year. And then after a year, the bones will be gathered up and put into a bone box called an ossuary, and then that is then placed in a final resting place. That's the burial. So what this guy is saying is, yeah, I really want to follow you, Jesus, but, you know, I got this thing, you know, I, 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 got, I got to do, Right? You know, you're important, but not as important as this thing I've got to do, which, and Jesus answered and says, in effect, your, your father's bones aren't going anywhere. They're not. But if you prioritize that over following me, I can tell, you, yeah, I mean something to you, but not that much, not that much, rejection. The worst one is yet to come. After the demons are cast out of those demoniacs, look at verse 33. The herd goes into the water. Here's what happens after that event. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, 
the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they threw their arms around him, carried him on their, their shoulders into town. They would hardly let him leave. They held a great big feast and cheered him on in all that he does. No. You could not have a more opposite response than the one I just said. Listen, what they, this is what they actually do. They begged him. They implored him. Look at this. They implored him to leave their region. It's like they got down on their knees, said, Jesus, please go away. Really, really impressed with that miracle right there. Go away don't come back. You talk about rejection. There it is. But notice this. When they beg him to leave, there is no greater proof of his being a Messiah than having done a miracle and then to be told, go away. Can Jesus back it up? He claims big things for himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches like a king. And he is one. But when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and you see the crowds are amazed at his teaching, they wonder, right, is this, <laughs> really, okay, this regular guy here, really? He's the king, he's the Messiah, he's the son of God, really, is that true? We'd like to think of Jesus as kind of an interesting sage, love, love, to, love to hear from him, very interesting. Jesus really knows how to hold a crowd. You know there would have been people in that day and maybe in this room who say, yeah, I mean, you know, all that. I'm, I'm impressed with Jesus. I'm, no, he's not the son of God. Mm -mm, no. Okay. But can you see in this passage of scripture how that option is taken away from you? How you don't get to think of Jesus that way? No. Okay. You've got the choice that we started with. He's either lying, but you know he's not, because he does these miracles. He's a lunatic, but does a lunatic teach like the Sermon on the Mount? I, no. No, he doesn't. Well, then you're left with one final conclusion. He is the very Son of God. He can back it up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the evidence that you give of who Jesus is, and we rejoice in who Jesus is, the very Son of God, made clear to us by the outpouring of power that we see in this passage. Father, we thank you for that, and we do ask, as has been asked before, for those in this room potentially uh, who do not know Jesus as Savior, that this day, this very day, and indeed this very hour would be the hour of conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment and the hour of decision of turning in repentance and faith to Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior. In his name we pray, amen.